And Lord, I want to pray now for, for this message this morning. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Would you strengthen faith here this morning in this room? Would you give faith to those who have none as of yet? Would you come and, and that every one of us would leave here trusting your holy son, Jesus, with all our hearts? Because we've, we've heard your word preached this morning. I need your help, Lord. Give me the heart you'd want me to have. Give me clarity of mind and spirit, I pray. And give me accuracy in, in accord with your word. Do all those things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. One thing um, that's true of every single one of us in this room is that, as I think we'd all agree, we all want our lives to count for something. Don't you? I mean, we all want to look back on our lives and say our lives are having some lasting meaning. There's a lasting meaning from the way that we've lived, a lasting purpose. We all want that. I mean, you can nurture that desire, or you can try to ignore that desire, but you can't remove it. It's, it's in all of us all the time. And, and the more we see, as you look at your life, the more you see that your life does have lasting meaning and purpose, the more fulfilled and satisfied you'll be. Right? I think it's clear. Okay, but so it's right at this point, though, that we bump up against a problem. Much of our meaning and fulfillment comes from sensing that our lives have lasting meaning, but we come up to this problem of the reality of death. How can we have meaning that's lasting when our lives aren't lasting? Right? We're all going to, to die. And you might answer, well, I'm going to pass on to my kids, and that's lasting meaning, and that's really a good thing to do. We are all for that. But your kids will die too, and their kids will die too. And so if we're, if we're all going to die, is there any lasting meaning in our lives? Let me read you a quote from Bertrand Russell who says, no, there's not. It's kind of a shocking quote. I, I found this quote very helpful. He's dead wrong. Okay? But I found it very helpful to just kind of raise the stakes of what's going on here in life. Bertrand Russell, brilliant mathematician, you've heard this quote before, many of you, uh, wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. It's still a required text in some college courses. He was an atheist. Listen to what he says. Is there any lasting meaning to your life? He says, man is the product of causes which have no purpose. His origin, his growth, his hopes are only the chance combinations of atoms. Nothing can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion are destined to extinction. This despair is the only foundation on which our souls can rest. That's Bertrand Russell. Appreciate his honesty. He's being very consistent with his premises as an atheist. Very consistent. But he's wrong. That's Bertrand Russell's answer. I want to show you God's answer this morning. God's answer is revealed in the scriptures. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you need a Bible, why don't you raise your hands? We are passionate about having everybody be able to look on 
A real Bible in front of your hands as I'm preaching. The Bible is the important part this morning, and anything that I do in explaining what the Bible says will be of benefit to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's on page 961 in the Bibles we're passing out. Did you all get a Bible passed out to you? Raise your hand if you need one. While we're passing those out, let me give you some background on 1 Corinthians. Uh, this, this letter, it's really a letter, is written by Paul the Apostle. Paul had been a fervent Jewish rabbi who was against Christians, but one day while he was traveling, the, the crucified, resurrected Jesus appeared to him, revealed himself to Paul. Paul saw how wrong he'd been, was busted in the depth of his heart, broken, confessed, owned up to the reality of Christ, and his life turned 180, and for the rest of his life, he traveled around the Mediterranean basin, preaching about Jesus in the marketplaces, preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, and planting churches. And one of the churches he planted was in Corinth, which is right uh, here. Okay, it's a Roman colony. This is, that's the Greece area. So Paul traveled all through there, but he planted this church in Corinth, which was a Roman colony, bustling commercial seaport. Preached there, people became followers of Jesus. He planted a church, then he left. A few years later, he wrote a letter to them to strengthen them in their faith, which is what you hold in your hands here, the letter of 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul explains to them that even though they will all die, unless Jesus comes back first, but even though death is in our future, Paul explains to them that, that they can still have lasting purpose. Their lives are still lastingly meaningful. That's Paul's conclusion. Look at verse 58. So all of chapter 15 is about this topic. You can see from his conclusion, last verse in chapter 15, verse 58, look at what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, brothers is a generic term here, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not meaningless. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, to figure out what Paul's saying there, we've got to tap into, notice it's in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. So who's the Lord? Okay, I don't want to assume that. Many of you know who the Lord is, but some of you may not. The Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, lived on the earth. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. Jesus Christ on the earth, fully man, fully God. So what that means is that in Jesus, God, the creator, came to the earth to his creation. God was here in the person of Jesus. And the reason God came was because we all faced his punishment. And the only way that we could be forgiven was if God himself came to the earth and was punished in our place with the punishment that we deserve. Now, a little bit of background to that. Why is that? Okay, the Bible teaches that every one of us has been created by God. You're not here as an accident, as Bertrand Russell said. You were purposefully created by God. He created you so that he could provide for you, he could guide you, he could satisfy you with himself. 
And he reveals all of who he was to you through creation. You can look at creation and just see that's who God's awesome. God's good. Look at all he's given to us. Bodies and health and life and friends and food to eat and sunsets to watch and birds to look at and amazing what he's given to us. And so even though God's revealed himself to us, even though he created us so that you could depend upon him for your needs and be guided by his guidance and be satisfied in his presence, we've all rebelled against him. We've all like made a declaration of independence against God. I I thought of it like this. We're kind of like fish. You know, fish have been created by God to live in water, to depend upon water. Imagine a fish refusing to live in the water. I refuse to be dependent upon water. It wouldn't be a pretty sight, okay? And when we refuse to depend upon God, to, to bend the knee to God, it's not a pretty sight. We were made to depend upon God. So we've all turned our backs on God. The the creatures have refused to acknowledge our creator. And it's wicked. And God is absolutely just. He's perfectly just. I was just in jury duty for two weeks on a case. And one thing that struck me from being in the courtroom, watching all this goes on, I mean, the judge walks in, I'll rise, I'll rise, he's got this robe on, you know, may I approach your honor? I mean, this judge, he, he's there. He's I'm sure he doesn't do it perfectly, but he's all about justice. You just feel this courtroom is about justice. And that's what we were told to do. Don't look at anything else. Just what's just. God is perfectly just. And because we, his creatures, have refused to acknowledge him as our creator and have turned our backs on him, we all face the punishment Infinite punishment, eternal punishment, because he's an infinitely glorious God. So God could have just cast us into punishment and been done with us. But he didn't. In amazing love and mercy and compassion, at great cost to himself, he came to earth in the person of Jesus to be punished in our place with the punishment that we deserve. That's the whole point of the cross. Jesus, fully God, allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, scourged, tortured, wrists nailed to a piece of wood, feet nailed to a piece of wood, and just propped up to just hang there and suffer for hours. And the wrath that we deserve because of our rebellion, God the Father was pouring out upon Jesus the Son for those who he would save. It's an an amazing, amazing picture of love and care and mercy and compassion. That was on Good Friday, 2,000 years ago. Friday evening, Jesus was buried in a tomb. Stone rolled over the tomb. Roman guards posted to make sure that no one messed with the tomb. All day Saturday, nothing changed. Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead, as we've been celebrating this morning. And so because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what this means is that if you will turn away from your independence against God, if you'll you'll turn from that way of living, and, and bend the knee in joyful, loving trust before Jesus, and welcome him into your life, as your Savior, 
who forgives, cleanses, as your Lord, whose guidance in the scriptures is flawless for how you should live. Welcome him into your life as your heart-satisfying treasure. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. If you'll welcome Jesus into your life, you'll be transformed. And this happened to me my senior year in high school, summer before my senior year. And it was amazing to feel the forgiveness of Jesus coming upon me and to feel my heart start to change by the power of Jesus and to have my heart for the very first time be filled, satisfied, full with the love and the, the experienced presence of Jesus. So this is why he came. And that's who the Lord is. The Lord is Jesus Christ. And so the moment that you turn from your independence and receive him into your life, your life starts to change. You're forgiven, you're changed, you're satisfied. And then Jesus calls you to work. Now you can see that in verse 58 again. Read that again. He calls us to work. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what is the work of the Lord? Okay, We're all called to work. If you're a follower of Jesus, he has said, now let's get to work. There's work to be done. So what's involved in the work? I just listed a couple things around your notes. He calls us to pray and study God's word. He calls us to fight against sin in our lives. This is all through the scriptures. You can find this. He calls us to endure trials and sufferings and difficulties with steadfastness and patience. He calls some of us to marriage and family. And if that's you, then he calls you to love your wife and to love your husband and to care for your children and to teach them about Jesus. I love that picture up there, that family. Father opening up the scriptures with his wife and kids. He calls us to a job. That might mean nurturing your children and keeping the home running smoothly. It might mean working at some other job where you get paid in order to support yourself and your family. Jesus calls you to that, okay? He calls you to love his people. Be devoted to a group of believers. Encourage them, serve them, help them, care for them. And he calls us to help others come to know Jesus, which includes caring for the poor, caring for the orphans and the widows, sharing the good news of Jesus with your neighbors and with friends you have who don't know Christ. So that's the work that Jesus calls us to pursue. And so the fact that he, in verse 58, says, be steadfast, be immovable, always be abounding in the work of the Lord, shows that the Corinthian believers must have been tempted to stop being steadfast in the work of the Lord and immovable in the work of the Lord. They were being tempted to not always be abounding in the work of the Lord. They were being tempted to stop abounding in the work of the Lord. And I would guess many of us are in that same place. Are you feeling temptation to back off from the work of the Lord, to not be always abounding in the work of the Lord? I think we all, I would guess every single one of you, yesterday had temptations come to make you back off from something that's the work of the Lord. So what keeps us from abounding in the work of the Lord? Let's just kind of get in touch with some of the things that get in the way. I thought of four. Maybe you can think of some other ones. There's distractions, okay? Like you sit down to read the scriptures and all of a sudden you get very interested in, in like going out and cleaning out your car. Anybody find something like that happening? You know, you never were interested in cleaning out your car before, but all of a sudden it's like, oh my car, there's just a lot of stuff in the car. I'll be back, you know, right? Distractions. Okay. There's lots of distractions. Are you ready to go to home group? And all of a sudden, wait a minute, sharks are on tonight. I mean, okay. 
There's distractions. Any other distractions you can think of? Okay, we've all got distractions we face. There's disappointments, like you've been looking for a job for months, or you've been struggling with medical issues for months, and there's just no change. You're praying, you're seeking to be steadfast, but there's just no change. Disappointments can make you just kind of back off a little bit from the work of the Lord. There's difficulties. Maybe there's somebody in your home group who's just kind of difficult to love and connect with. Maybe you have a child who's very hard to discipline, to, to, to raise. Maybe there's somebody at your workplace, or maybe like your work environment is just terrible, so there's, there's difficulties that come. And I just thought about hopelessness. I mean, we can sometimes find ourselves just saying, you know, why bother? I mean, is, is, is it really worth it going hard after the work of the Lord? Is it really worth it to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, which is a strong word? And we can just back off thinking, I'm not so sure it's worth it. I'm not sure it's really going to count. I'm not sure it's really going to pay off. Why not just take the easier? Why not just coast? Those are four things I thought of. Anybody else think of any other ones? What are some things that keep us from abounding in the work of the Lord? I'm sorry? Hobbies could, okay. Hobbies could just suck up a lot of your time that you could be in, in, involved with the, the work of the Lord. What else? Dale? Sin could certainly get in the way. Okay. Okay, all those. All right, so, there's just, so are you in touch with what keeps you from abounding in the work of the Lord right now? We've all got different ones, but every single one of us has at least one thing that's in the way or that you're being tempted to, to let cause you to back off from the work of the Lord. Okay, but in this verse, 58, Paul calls the believers in Corinth, and because we're believers, he's calling us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So, how can we keep abounding in the work of the Lord? With all these difficulties we've just mentioned, how can we keep abounding in the work of the Lord? The reason is at the end of verse 58, Read the verse again. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're trusting Jesus and doing your work in the Lord, working your job in the Lord, raising your kids in the Lord, loving somebody in your home group in the Lord. If you're, if you're trusting Jesus and doing your work in the Lord, then your labor is not in vain. It will count. It does matter. It will make a difference. It is not in vain. Okay, why not? The reason is found in that first word of verse 58. It's the word therefore. Okay? What does the word therefore show you? It shows you that the author is drawing a conclusion from previous verses, right? So because of the previous things Paul has said in chapter 15, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, What has he said in the previous verses? He's talked all about how we will be raised from the dead. Our resurrection. Okay? Look at verse 51 and 52. Two of the verses in the previous chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we won't all die. 
but we all shall be changed. The reason we won't all die is that some of us might still be alive when Jesus comes back at the second coming. It's always a possibility. Okay? We won't all die, but we will all be changed. Every one of us will be resurrected, whether we've died or whether Jesus comes back, whatever happens first. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. So what keeps us abounding in the work of the Lord, Paul says to the Corinthians, is the certainty of your resurrection. If you're trusting, let me put it a different way, if you're not trusting Jesus yet, we're really glad you're here. Okay, it's probably a scary thing to go to a church, okay? We're glad you're here. Hope you're feeling somewhat comfortable, all right? But I need to tell you, if you're, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, then you'll be, you'll be raised to, to punishment. That's what the Bible teaches, Okay? It doesn't have to happen, though, if, you, if you'll trust Jesus, and that's what we want to plead with you to do. But if you are trusting Jesus, you'll be raised to everlasting life. You will be resurrected. So just get that fixed in your mind. Because you're trusting Jesus, you will be resurrected. Now, that does not mean that you're going to be like a pudgy cherub sitting on a cloud plucking a harp. It's hard to get real passionate about that. What it means is that you will receive a new resurrection body, which is more real and more physical than your present body, and you will be living on a more real, more physical new earth than this present earth. So you're going to have a new resurrection body, more real, more physical, living on a new earth, more real, more physical, but you're hardly going to even notice your new body and the new earth because you will be blown away in beholding Jesus Christ for the first time face to face. Now just try to wrap your heart around this. What will it be like? Imagine, I just love thinking about this. It's good for us, good for the soul. It makes you steadfast. What will it be like when you're face-to-face, like 10 feet away, maybe 5 feet away, from the one who has always been? There, see him. The one who's created everything, right before you, face-to-face, eyes, right there, seeing him. What will that be like? What will that feel like? To, to be before the one who rules over everything absolute sovereignty over everything. To be face to face before the one against whom you rebelled. You rebelled against him. But face to face with the one who loved you, you will see it in his eyes. Burning with love for you. The one who loved you so much that he looked at you in your rebellion, in your turning your back on him, And he died, took upon himself the punishment that you rightfully deserved and was crucified to pay for your sins. So there you are, face to face, first time. What will you do? Okay? Weep with joy, fall on your face, leap in ecstasy, okay? 
But here's the point. If you're trusting Jesus, you will be resurrected. That will happen. That will be your experience. That will happen. That will be your experience. Face to face with Jesus, whose face is just burning with love for you. So glad you're saved. So glad you're forgiven. So glad you're home. Okay, so how does our resurrection in the future then motivate our work now? What's the connection? How does the work of the Lord now get motivated by knowing I'm going to be resurrected in the future? How does that work? It's because the resurrection means that your work now is going to count for eternity. It will last. It will make a difference forever. How? Okay, first of all, think. You're going to see Jesus displayed in his glory, which will be like, oh, it's awesome. And when you see him, it'll just be so clear. You, you know that in your mind now, but you will see it for yourself. His glory is the infinitely supreme value of the entire universe. You'll see that. Your glory is everything. And then you'll see your work here on the earth has added to the display of his glory that you and all the redeemed will enjoy forever. Let me say that again. You will see his glory. You'll see that his glory is infinitely valuable. It's the supreme value, head and shoulders above any other value that there is. And you'll understand that your work now in this life adds to the display of his glory forever. It doesn't add to his glory. His glory is infinite. Awesome. But it adds to the display of his glory. There will be facets of the display of his glory that will be there because you, this afternoon, loved someone who's hard to love for Jesus' sake. Facet of his glory. So, for example, what, let's say you're facing months of unemployment or months of medical difficulties, and during those months you fight to trust Jesus, to trust him. Lord, it's hard. I want to trust you. You are good. You're wise. You're my treasure. I trust you. Those months, when you're standing before Jesus, you will have added to the display of his glory that you and the redeemed will behold forever. There will be facets of his glory displayed that wouldn't have been there had you not fought to trust Jesus through that trial. Your labor is not in vain. Forever, you'll see how your labor has displayed even more of who he is. Do you feel that? This is an amazing thing. This makes our lives now huge. The way you live today will display more of Jesus' glory Forever! Do you feel that? Oh, it's worth it. Moroccan believers, it's worth it. Trust him. Trust him. Love your enemies. It's worth it. It's worth it all. When for Jesus' sake, you share the gospel with a neighbor, because because Jesus is precious to you, and you want to honor Jesus to your neighbor, whether your neighbor responds or not, forever, you will see displays of Jesus' glory that are there because you shared the gospel with your neighbor. It's not in vain. When, for the glory of Jesus, 
because of his preciousness. You devote an hour to praying for the Moroccan team. Some of you are fasting and praying for the Moroccan team. Or you labor in prayer for a wayward child, unseen, unnoticed. Or you pray for someone in your home group who's in need for the glory of Jesus. You're laboring in prayer in an unseen, unnoticed way. It will be seen and noticed forever by all the redeemed because there will be facets of Jesus' glory displayed that would not have been displayed as clearly had you not done that. You feeling this? Oh, this has been good for me this week just to feast on. When, uh, out of love for God's glory, you use the scriptures and prayer to fight lust in your heart, to fight pride, to fight anger or unforgiveness or bitterness or hurt or whatever it might be, when you, when you seek the Lord in the scriptures and fight the fight of faith for the glory of Christ, forever you will see added displays of Jesus' glory. You and all the redeemed, forever. And then when for Jesus' sake you're steadfast in loving someone who's not responsive to you, maybe a husband who's neglecting you, but for Jesus' sake you keep loving or a wife who's not responsive, but for Jesus' sake, you keep loving. Or somebody who's hurt you terribly, and for Jesus' sake, you forgive. For Jesus' sake. That will add something to the display of Jesus' glory that you and all the redeemed will enjoy forever. So your work is not in vain. Okay, As you stand... You will be resurrected if you're trusting Jesus Christ. You will stand with all the redeemed, beholding his glory. And at that moment, beholding his glory, you will see facets of his glory displayed in ways that would not have been displayed had you not abounded always in the work of the Lord. So that's why your work is not in vain, because you'll be raised from the dead. Now, that all hinges though on you being raised from the dead, doesn't it? Bertrand Russell says you're not going to be raised from the dead. There's nothing anybody can do. Larry Ellison spends a lot of money trying to you know, find ways to extend human life. Nothing wrong with that. If you're just going to extend it. It's going to stop at some point in time. So how can you be confident? How can you be certain that you're going to be resurrected? Paul says that if we're trusting Jesus, we can be absolutely sure we'll be raised from the dead because his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. The reason you can be certain you'll be raised from the dead is because Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits, the the first of a vast number that no one can count who will be raised. Jesus was raised from the dead both to vindicate his death both to show that he did not die the death of a common criminal, both to show that everything he said was true, and also to show all of the redeemed, this is what will happen to you too. You'll be raised. Okay? So then we're left with the question, how can we be sure Jesus was raised from the dead? And in chapter 15, Paul gives the Corinthian believers some reasons to be sure. Verses 3 through 8, look at what he says. Is this just like the opiate of the people, or is this just, uh, you know, like pie in the sky by and by? No. There's reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul says the reason we can be certain, one reason we can be certain that Jesus rose from the dead is because there's massive historical evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, we got all these people that he appeared to. That's why Paul lists them. Okay, so when I was in jury duty, we heard from witnesses, eyewitnesses. We were instructed, eyewitnesses are one of the highest forms of evidence that we can have. You know, eyewitness, really, really important. So imagine being in a courtroom on a jury, and you see over 500 eyewitnesses. Ordinary, sober-minded, sane, regular, ordinary folk, one after the other. I saw Jesus physically, really, before me. I saw Jesus, too, physically. He was there, really, before me. I saw Jesus, really, physically, before me. Five, six, seven, five hundred, and more. Okay? See, there's massive, historical evidence demonstrating that Jesus rose from the dead, and there is no evidence to the contrary. Okay? Simon Greenleaf. Let me tell you about Simon Greenleaf. He taught law at Harvard in the 1800s. He was one of the founders of Harvard Law School. He wrote a three-volume textbook on the use of evidence in courts. How to use evidence. Okay? Three volumes. Standard text used for decades. What I heard is that he was not a believer, and some Christian students challenged him to use his approach to evidence to evaluate the resurrection. Okay? He did exactly that. Became a Christian because of it. Here's a quote from a book he wrote. The resurrection of Jesus is one, is one of the best established facts of history. So Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, if you're trusting him, you will be raised from the dead. Your life, yes, you'll die, but there's resurrection life hereafter. And because you'll be raised from the dead, to the extent that you've always abounded in the work of the Lord, forever you will see displays of Jesus' glory that are there because of your work for the Lord. You'll enjoy those displays with the redeemed forever. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Let's draw this to a conclusion. Any questions, just real quick, first of all? Anything before I... I'd like to just see if there's any questions in case I haven't been clear on something which, which happens from time to time. Or just, yeah, go ahead. So the um, idea of the display of his glory forever, yeah. where, where, can you give me some scripture to look at to see? The one that I'm keying off of is um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, I believe it is. So Janie's asking, where's a scripture that would, that would talk about that display of glory. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 12, Paul talks about how the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. So, so you, Janie, forever will be contributing to the glory, the glorification, the display of Jesus' glory. 
okay, in a way different from David, okay, so, and each of us will have a part in that, and that's the whole point of the work of the Lord, that is, as we've lived for the Lord, for his sake, for his glory now, he will be more glorified, his glory will be displayed the more fully because of the way we live now, so that's the verse, one of the verses that I kind of keyed off of. Everybody will be raised. John 5, 41 and 42 is a good text. Let's just turn there real quick. It's a really good question. Most of the New Testament talks about the resurrection of believers, okay? But it's clear, there's a couple of verses that make it clear that both those who are trusting Jesus, who have bent the knee to Jesus, and those who are not, will be raised, but to very different uh, destinies. Okay, John 5, 41 through 42, I hope I'm right. Uh No. Well, somebody else, okay, so Revelation 20, great wine throne judgment, both believers and unbelievers are there, okay? People who aren't trusting Christ aren't, aren't annihilated. They don't just l- lose consciousness. Okay, Revelation 20 makes it really clear that they are raised, resurrected. But it's, it's to eternal punishment. And that, that's very painful for us followers of Jesus to talk about. Um, we love you if you are not yet trusting Jesus. And we long for nothing more than that you would see who Jesus is and trust him. So, okay. Thanks, Tom. Well, I'll move on then. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. So forget the John 5, 41 and 42 one. 25. Sorry, pardon? 5, 28, 29? Did, did you say, okay. You saved me. There it is. All right. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice all who are in the tombs, and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Exactly. Thank you very much. See that? John five twenty-eight and 29. Okay. Okay, any other questions, you can email me or we can talk afterwards. But let me just draw two, two conclusions for us. Trust Jesus. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if some of you here this morning have not yet come to the place where you trust Jesus. You maybe have prayed a prayer, maybe you've even gone forward in a meeting, but have you welcomed Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior, as your Lord, as your heart-satisfying treasure? See, you really are like a fish who was created to depend upon water. You are. You, okay, fish need water, right? right? Gills, breathing, okay, the whole thing. You were created to depend upon God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. You were created to depend upon Jesus. That's how you were meant to live this all this afternoon, depending upon Jesus, relying on Jesus. Help me, thank you, I trust you, guide me. You were meant, just like a fish gets oxygen from the water, you were meant to breathe in everything that you need from trusting Jesus all afternoon today. And so, please just own up to that. You're a created being, you were created by God to depend upon God. And so see who Jesus is. He loves you. Look at what he sacrificed. Look at the cost he was willing to endure in order to have you be able to be forgiven. And trust him. We'd love to pray with you before you leave today. We'd love to talk with you. We'll keep it all private and confidential, but we would love to help you. Trust Jesus. And then secondly, those of you who are trusting Jesus, abound in the work of the Lord. It's just a short time. I had a friend who I've been sharing the Lord with recently. 
having breakfast with him. Some of you have been praying for me with him. and I, I sh- I'm thankful that I was able to share the Lord with him about eight, ten weeks ago, a couple times. Um, he's, he's dying in the hospital right now. His son called me yesterday. He said, you know, my dad's, my dad's trusting the Lord. He's trusting the Lord. But, but he's, he's going home. And it just struck me how quickly life can end. Even if you live another 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, it's going to end really quickly. Okay? So abound in the work of the Lord. Yes, you'll face difficulties. You'll face distractions. You will be attacked and discouraged at times. Yes. But if you will abound in the work of the Lord, labor to to be in the word, to be in prayer, to endure the trials and sufferings God's allowed you to, to come up against, if you will fight against sin in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, relying on Jesus, if you'll love your husband, if you'll love your wife, if you'll love your kids and care for them, if you'll work your job, if you'll love brothers and sisters, encourage them, if you'll seek to share Christ with with lost people, it will not be in vain. None of it will be in vain. Every bit of it, as completely hidden and unknown and, and, you know, off to the side you might think it is, forever, you will see Jesus' glory displayed to you and to all the redeemed in ways that you would not have seen had you not abounded in the work of the Lord. So, be steadfast. Brothers, sisters, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your toil is not in vain. I want to call you to. It's going to last. It's going to count. It's going to matter. Nobody may see it now. You may not be appreciated for it now. He sees it now. You will see it then, along with all the redeemed, forever. Let's pray together. Why don't you stand? Two thousand years ago, Jesus, God in the flesh, you suffered on the cross to pay for sin. You died. You rose from the dead. So all who trust you will be completely forgiven, will be changed progressively through our lives, will be completely satisfied in knowing you walking with you, trusting you. And all of our labor in the Lord, every bit of it will matter, will count forever. As we will see added displays of your glory, we and all the redeemed with us forever because of our work in the Lord. What hugely significant, meaningful Lives we have. We tremble at the meaning that our lives this afternoon have, tonight have, tomorrow have. Oh Lord, forgive us for ways we've gotten discouraged, coasted, pulled back. No more. We want to abound in your work. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for the lives you've given to us.